0: For more than a hundred years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. And for the next century, South Dakota's focused on making pheasant hunting even greater. Welcoming more hunters to the field, showing the hunting community is for everyone. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's HuntTheGreatestSD.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. everyone. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and I am flying co-hostless today. And I'm excited to welcome two guests to the podcast, uh, Tania Bethke and Emily Keel. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Marsha. Yeah, I'm really excited to delve into um, our conversation topic and to pick both of your brains. But let's get started. Emily, will you kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are?
1: Yeah, thank you again for having us. So my name is Emily Keel. I'm the marketing and outreach director for the South Dakota Game Fish and Parks here in Pierre, South Dakota. I'm born and raised South Dakotan. I grew up in Watertown, which is in the northeast corner of the state, our Glacial Lakes area. Um, my family, my parents, are still there today, and I have a younger sister. Um, both of us grew up camping hunting, fishing with our parents. My dad was the primary hunter. Um, I was also his you know little buddy of choice who went in the field with him more than my sister did. She wasn't too keen on uh, being around guns or shooting guns, but that's okay. Um, then you know, I, I really grew up uh, with that passion and that love and that heart for being outside. Um, we were the we were the little kids in the neighborhood that didn't come in until it was dark, and it, it was okay because mom knew we were outside and we we had a radius around uh, the block there that we couldn't uh, part from, so we were good. But you know, I I, uh, I grew up you know high school, graduated high school from Watertown, went to school at Minnesota State Moorhead, moved out to Pier um in 2005 and have been in various roles in state government ever since primarily serving in that communications marketing and public relations roles um i landed at Game fish and parks in 2014 and i i've been here since and i i love the work that i do i love the people that i'm surrounded by and our mission of you know serving you know hunters and anglers and trappers and campers and boaters and landowners and connecting them with our outdoor resources and opportunity, uh, you know, while managing our state's parks, fisheries, and wildlife resources is is really aligned well with my passion of, of how I grew up. And so I, I wouldn't change anything in, in where I'm at and my family and I have a, a small acreage north of town. Um, so we live and
0: breathe the outdoors, um, you know, just every day too. So I'm curious, but, about me. <laughs> yeah. can you, can you talk a little bit about um, the journey? I, I was going to say decision, but sometimes decision um, is too small of a point, right? Because it, it, it narrows it down to a moment in time, which I know oftentimes it's just the way life carries us. But how can you talk about how your connection to the outdoors and your um, experience growing up as a hunter and angler led you to a career for an agency?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I grew up wanting to be, you know, a teacher. Um, and then later kind of transformed, you know, as you as you grow up. You have advisors and mentors and, and counselors kind of guiding you in a way like, what do you love? What do you like most about yourself or most about what you're doing in your, your past or your downtime? And for a while there, I wanted to uh, create or design women's hunting clothing because when I grew up and I could talk for, for hours, hours about this. <laughs> me too. Yeah but I'll, I'll, I'll truncate it for everybody. When I was growing up in the eighties and early nineties, you know, there wasn't the market like there is today. The industry wasn't there for youth and for in particular emails. I mean, women hunters have always been around, but I grew up wearing my dad's hand-me-downs and trust me, they didn't fit. I was always cold, which is still true today. I'm still, (laughs) whether I'm indoors or outdoors, but I and, and plus we didn't have the money, um, you know. I didn't have the financial resources to to buy my own guns or to have my dad buy them. So I shared everything. Um, you know the boots. I was able to get you know decent ones uh, to keep my feet warm and stuff. But the, so that was something that I really wanted to do was design uh, women's and youth uh, hunting attire. But I. I I obviously did not go down that road and, and several other smarter, um, and professional people and people that knew how to sew did that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so those are some things that I wanted to do, but I didn't put it together, you know, that I would be able to work for game fish and parks probably until I was in my oh, early twenties. I got an internship with the Minnesota department of natural resources. Um, right there in Brainerd and I was working on the aquatic invasive uh, species outreach campaign uh, for them and that's when I really was like okay I I, these are the skills that I have I'm good at this and storytelling and educating and making sure um, the public is aware of you know certain rules and issues and guidelines and then marrying that up with, you know, being outside and my love of the outdoors. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until about 10 years later that I got to be at the Game Fish and Parks, though.
0: So. so interesting. And I do love that about the the environment that we work in, right? It's like, are you a comms person? Great. We need comms people. Are you an educator? Great. We need educators. Are you a biologist? Excellent. We need a biologist. I think um, there's, there's a ton of ways that you can that people can contribute the strengths and interests that they have to their passions for hunting and fishing and being outdoors. And it sounds like you found a a perfect way to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And at the root of it all was, was really my father. I mean, uh, mentoring and teaching me growing up and just driving home that passion and that love, not only ethically, but, um, you know, from the activity and, and making sure that, um, that story of, of our outdoor resources is handed down to that next generation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Tanaya, tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, so
2: thanks again for having us both on, and it's so great to be here, Marcia. Um, so my name is Tanaya Beske, and I am the Director of Operations for the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. And I'm on kind of the opposite side of a coin from Emily. Um, Emily grew up in this really great family tradition of hunting, and I did not grow up hunting or fishing with my family for the most part. Um, and I didn't learn to hunt until I came to South Dakota. And I came here from Texas, where there was a lot of private land. And I, um, you know, I came to South Dakota, and it, it was just the perfect way to recreate was to be able to engage in the outdoors. And there's so much opportunity here. But um, I got here kind of traveling a long and winding path. I uh, went to school in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, for conservation biology. And um, I grew up, much like Emily, with my family outside. Um, My mom would take us on long road trips camping and seeing national parks and state parks. And so there was this huge love of being in wild spaces growing up. And we also had a huge garden while I was growing up. So food sustainability and like local food harvest was a really big part of my upbringing. Um, And so that was something that's always been attractive to me. But it wasn't until I was an adult and was looking at having a family and moving to a small community where I was like, yes hunting is something that I want to be a part of and at that same time I had just started working as the R3 coordinator for South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, um and had just exposure to a ton of people who also loved being outside and broke down my stereotypes of what a hunter meant and what being a hunter was and so that's what really got me involved here but um I worked with Game Fish and Parks for four and a half years, and then I started my career with um, the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports, and that has been a total joy, to continue to spread um, the love for outdoor and wild spaces and um, really work on diversity and inclusion work in hunting and shooting sports.
0: It's fantastic, and and we've long had the opportunity to work with the Council um, and are deeply appreciative of the work you do, so I was excited to see when you joined the team there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a a very exciting opportunity. Can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned how um, moving to a smaller community and starting a family really jump kicked your interest in hunting. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've lived in cities
2: before here and I've lived all over the country and I just either A, didn't have access to public land or B, didn't have the resources and, and community of people who were interested in going hunting too. And again, a lot of stereotypes about what being a hunter meant that were blocking me from getting involved. So when I moved to pier and I met these badass women who invited me over to drink a beer and process an elk quarter, (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, these people are also interested in feeding their families locally sourced protein. They had this beautiful love of wildlife and the outdoors that I shared. And finally, I found my community of people that shared my values and loved uh, conservation as much as I did. And so being in this town and having a family I wanted to provide for And I wanted to get healthy, sustainably harvested local protein for just it all fit together perfectly for me to start hunting here.
0: That's fantastic. And I love kind of the demonstration of that as as uh, kind of the real breadth of what the word mentoring can mean. Sometimes it's just inviting somebody over for a wild game dinner. Or inviting somebody, even if they haven't expressed an interest in hunting outright, inviting them over to process this elk. Uh, Because, you know, they're an extra set of hands. And if they're into that, everybody benefits. That's
2: huge. Absolutely. I remember looking at her Facebook account, and she had this elk quarter in her bathtub. These are totally going to be great people to know. And then they started inviting me into that space. You know, we processed chickens together. They took me dove hunting. Uh, we went out pheasant hunting together, and then Casey eventually became my mentor when I took my first deer. And we went out in the field you know, six times together. Yeah. And at that time, I had also started teaching people how to process deer, and so it was just a really great environment to be in, and a really supportive group of friends to be a part of. I love that.
0: Uh, one of the things we're here to talk about today is some cool projects that uh, the South Dakota. Game Fish and Parks Agency is doing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Second Century Habitat Initiative? Sure, I can take that
1: one. Uh, so this is Emily again,
0: and you know, thank you for that. Those
1: fun stories tonight That's really you know a great segue and and different kind of way that she she got into everything too, and and just that community support is huge for for new users. Um, but Second Century Habitat Fund, you know, in South Dakota. Hunting is more than a sport. It's an economic engine and a way of life. You know, we've been, been, the Department of Game, Fish and Parks has been part of that for over 100 years. And I talked earlier about the sustainability of pheasant hunting and just our outdoor resources and making sure we're handing that down to the next generation and building these outdoor families. And that's really the heart of Second Century. It's a nonprofit, 501C three corporation that really works with landowners and conservation groups to not only improve and create pheasant habitat access across south dakota but habitat for all wildlife it's it's a governed board but and those board members are appointed by governor christine ohm and they represent landowners business owners pheasant preserve operators and community leaders in our state Um, it's really about habitat development raising funds to enhance and create habitat across our state. Habitat's expensive, it's a long game. It's not anything that we're gonna see develop overnight or in days or in weeks or in months. It's, it's really a long game. And that's when we talk future generations and making sure that we have the funds, the resources and the capabilities to, to continue telling and selling that story of how important habitat is. Um, it is the foundation to wildlife management. Um, and so that fund board is really gaining some momentum. They're raising funds. Um, they're, you know, we've had some promotional opportunities and partnerships with with landowners as well as um, brands like the Can-Am. We're giving away a, like the ultimate pheasant hunting rig. Um, you know, we've also partnered with uh, Premier reserve operator to do a giveaway hunt. And so those are things that folks can sign up with to participate in and get their chance to to be part of that. You know, the other thing that is really um, a true partnership here is with our South Dakota Department of Tourism and the pheasant hunting marketing campaign that we've uh, been working on for the last two years. So we're in year two right now. and And it's really about incremental growth um in increasing pheasant hunters across our state as well as enhancing our story of how we talk about habitat and conservation in the next century um but that partnership has been really unique a lot of fun um really driving home the fact that you know at game fish and parks we're not only stewards of our state's parks fisheries habitat and wildlife but our department and our commission you know, we help to drive the economic development and impact to our hometown communities. That directly ties back to our quality of life and why we live here. We are the greatest state to hunt uh, pheasants in, and and that's really what that partnership and that marketing campaign, um, you know, tells tells across the board. So,
0: there's so much that I I, I appreciate about the way the South Dakota is approaching that one is just like the holistic collaborative effort. That draws on on industry and landowners and agency managers and um, uh, you know tourism plus habitat quality and hunting. It's just bringing all partners together um, to 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 invest in this uh, lifestyle that's so important to South Dakotans and and I love the long-term perspective. I mean, literally planting seeds, right? <laughs> like It's yes. literally yes. planting seeds that, that, um, the future will benefit from. So I love that. I am curious though, for, for those of us who, um, aren't familiar with South Dakota landscape and, and maybe even with pheasant hunting, can you set the scene for us? Like what it's like, what's described the landscape, what you hear, what do you smell? Just kind of take us there if you can.
2: So we're here in Pierre, South Dakota, and we're surrounded by the Fort Pier National Grasslands and the
0: Missouri River River Breaks.
2: And so we're on a landscape of rolling hills, uh, medium and short grass prairie, and absolutely gorgeous sloughs and cattails and bright, bright, bright cornflower blue skies in the fall. I think what's really special about being out in the field is when the sun hits ripe cattail fluff as dogs are working a field ahead of you when you're hunting pheasants and i think that that is something that always sticks with me throughout the season something i always look forward mm-hmm. to um what would you
1: say what do yeah you say so that i think you know and I, this is something it's just it's a different kind of smell um you know it's harvest time at the same time here in south dakota and so the fields just smell different you know the when our dog is working its way through the the grasslands um it it brushes some new smells up that I, you know, that just brings back memories, right? Not only with me and my dad and our dog back when, but um, you know, and I and I can't like make my children smell that right now. But it's like I hope that those those are just memories, right? That that but it really is um a different and special time of year. And Tanaya really set the stage for what Central South Dakota's like. Um but, you know, in October we could have a variety of different weather. So it's not just the sunshine. We could have rainy days out in the field. There could be snow, potential blizzards. I mean, so it just really depends, um, you know, what what you might get yourself into. The sunshine is really great. I love the smell of sunshine on my face, but that wind as well, I mean, oh gosh, it can, it can throw some rank smells in there too. So what do you
2: got? So, That's awesome. so New Year years ago so pheasant hunting has been extended now past new year yeah so like now you can go all the way until the end of january which yep is awesome it added a whole nother month to our pheasant hunting season just within the last year but i remember going out on new year's day with friends of mine and it was negative 30 degrees outside we all had icicles on our eyelashes and we were hunting these these cattail flues for pheasants and there were tons of birds out because no one else hunts that late in the season because it's so cold but
0: I hope people understand the
2: opportunity because it's so
0: much fun. That's great. That's amazing and I love uh, uh, some of the descriptors that you both used for that like the smell of suns- sunshine on your face because um, we all know that the, like there's a smell mm-hmm. that accompanies that as, long, as well as the feel and the warmth and then just picturing the light through the, 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 um, the fluff. Oh, one
1: thing we did forget to mention is that smell of gunpowder. There's huh. nothing.
0: So there's true.
1: Nothing that
0: even comes to that. Oh, it's so funny you mentioned that because I was at the range last week. Um, you know, sighting in my rifle for big game season here in Montana, and and it was like I I it clicked in my head. It's like this is here we are. This is the smell of the season. A smell of the mm-hmm. season, not the smell of the season, but definitely, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it just goes to the, that, what is that? That old factory sense is, is the one that's most directly connected to memory. Mm -hmm. It's it's really interesting. That's beautiful. I would love to hear some stories, Emily, what's one of your favorite memories from the field? Gosh,
1: I have a lot of them. Um, And, you know, oftentimes I keep them close. Um, I'll share them on Instagram from time to time, but you know, I have I have a few stories of like doubling up on game, whether it was a turkey with my dad, an antelope with my husband. And I won't share all the backstories because there's also been some cuss words and like, <laughs> what are you doing over <laughs> there? You need to be over here. I said one, two, three, shoot. You said one, two, three, <laughs> uh, you know, or shoot on three, you know, but those doubling up on on games. Uh, different game species has been you know quite memorable in my in my memory bank but the one that I have right now um, my husband and I are my husband's always been a predator hunter but we're fairly new to hunting uh, mountain lions in our state in in the western portion of our state in the Black Hills and so we got into that in early 2020 so that was our first hunt it was actually the first harvest that we had, I mean, we're good hunters, but I, I might align that with maybe beginner's luck a little bit, we were in the right spot at the right time. And we, we had, we came across the one track and it was the last day of hunting. Um, and that was intense. Um, we'd, all, we'd been by that spot before, um, but this was, this was fresh snow. It was a fresh track. Um, we're, we're not really great at gauging well, we're getting better i should I should reframe that We're getting better at gauging the time of the track, but this one was like within ten minutes. I mean it was crazy and this lion it happened to be a hundred and twenty pound male he had this was his area. he was the king he had he had his territory, he had water, he had food, he had habitat, and it was his domain. Well, we had just entered it and Um, my husband is a a caller so he he called this lion in we probably sat a typical sit is 30 to 35 minutes and we were by each other we were maybe 10 feet apart um, and his hands were shaking and I'd never seen him do that and I'm like well where the hell is this lion and where is he going to come from? Because I'd never done anything like this before. And we both have tags. Um, in in South Dakota, this is a hunt only for residents. And it's an over-the-counter uh, tag. And so just to be clear about that. Um, so we're about 15 minutes in on this set. And he can see this lion. Well, my from my vantage point, I can't see it. Oh, wow. So I'm really like, well, who's, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see what this, what happens, right? Well, he takes the shot. I mean, because he'd been coached and mentored by other lion hunters before even going out. It's like, if you've got a shot, you need to take it. Cause that lion it's going to be gone because it, it really wants nothing to do with us. Right. And, but it was coming into that call and Chad got the right shot at the right time. Um, and, and, and harvested that lion instantly it I didn't see it until it somersaulted down the cliff I mean it it tucked and rolled and I mean it was hit it just didn't know it was hit kind of thing um and it was my husband and I were like did this really just happen I mean we were so excited I can just remember us like like he was go he was going over to the lion right away I was getting that I didn't even get our stuff right away I don't think. So I was tracking him. We had to follow the bloodline um underneath this tree. It was it was really memorable. I can and I maybe not be the best storyteller sharing that back with everybody who's listening, but that is probably uh the most memorable hunt that I have and it was the most recent one and it was with my best friend, my husband. Yeah. Um we just took the time. We we didn't have any expectations. So I think these are good things for us to remember as hug hunters too. Is you know we were in an area that we didn't have service or distractions, you know, with our families, with our phones, with our work, um, and we 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 didn't have any expectations of what was to come out of it, and we just really enjoyed that time outside, you know. And I saw 200 miles of the Black Hills that I hadn't seen before, even being a lifetime resident of the state, and so. Um, But those are, that tops it. And then there's, there's several others, but thank you for letting me share that. Yeah. Yeah. that's And we're hooked. We're definitely hooked on lion hunting. And that is something that we make sure that we have carved out um, in our schedules. It opens up December 26th um, with a new season here. And we do have a quota in our state, um, you know, for those residents who are listening in. And I I mean, there's, there's an avid group of you know, three to four thousand lion hunters um, in our state, and so it's really, you know, tonight I talked about that community. It's it's a community of hunters um, who share passionately about what it's like to be a lion hunter and and you know the different experiences and successes and and not successes that folks have in, in the field.
0: So yeah, it's great. Uh, and the important role that hunters play in management for for. Mountain lions. Um, and I think it's an interesting tool that they that South Dakota implements to manage it with um, over-the-counter resident-only tags. That seems yeah. like an interesting approach. Um, I am curious. So I'm familiar with using dogs to hunt cats, but this is the first that I've heard about calling. Is it a wounded animal call?
1: Yeah, it was a distressed
0: rabbit. Okay, it's the one that worked for. Us. Mm-hmm. Nice. I can only imagine the feeling that you had sitting there knowing it was close and not being able to see it. Yeah. It was, I mean, I,
1: I didn't even know how to feel cause I'd never done it before and I didn't have any expectations, but I, your head's on a swivel, yeah, right. And yeah. you have to move slowly. And I mean, your vision is a, is a key sense that you, you must have in those moments and, you know, sitting still. And, but the minute I knew my husband had, his eye on it was okay then this this is his cat I mean we're doing this together but this is his and um you know if I can yeah
2: I have to tell you Marcia I'm looking at this picture of Emily and her husband hunting this cat (laughs) up on her shelf and this cat's bigger than Emily (laughs) that's very
1: true I I, I'm I'm tiny but but pretty mighty I carry a lot on my shoulders but it it was a 120-pound male cat, wow. and I'm about a 115-pound female. <laughs> Stop it with. Because this is the <laughs> of my
2: life. Hear both of her husband are just glowing in this picture, it's pretty yeah. cool to see.
1: Yeah, thank you for adding that. Yeah. yeah. Can you, can, I, I, I'm anxious to hear what Tania's is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's next, Tania. But uh, Emily, can you send us that picture? I would love to share that with our Facebook group, uh, our podcast Facebook yes,
1: group. Yes, I, I will absolutely
0: do that. Excellent. Uh, Tanaya, tell us a story about one of your favorite memories.
2: So I have kind of, I'm kind of split here. One of them is my own hunting experience, and another one is a teaching experience. And so if you, if I have a quick minute, I wouldn't mind sharing both of those. Great. But um, I'll share the teaching one here just real quick. I love learn to hunt programs, and South Dakota has a hunting 101 program that just really is close and near and dear to my heart. And I help out at Kennebec with their pheasant, uh, their adult pheasant learn to hunt um, event with Travis March every year. And this year we had 15 adult hunters that came in to learn how to pheasant hunt and it's like everyone was super interested in everything we were doing and I got there right after they'd been out in the field and my job was to teach pheasant processing and um, and cooking. And this group was the most enthusiastic group of people I have ever met. And I usually teach how to not only breast out pheasant, but I want to get every ounce of meat off of that animal that I can out of respect for the wildlife. And so we get the thighs out. I teach everybody how to get the tendons out of the lower legs. We pelt out the pheasants. And we, I teach people how to preserve the pelts if they want to use the feathers for fly time. Um, I teach them how you can make bone broth with the carcass, the whole shebang. Well, we get that far, and the class is like, can you eat the gizzards? You sure can. (laughs) How about the hearts? Can we eat the livers? Like everyone just wanted to try everything. And so we, you know, we broke down those birds more than I have ever gotten into game processing in my entire life. And the whole class, like we fried up all of the hearts and livers and the gizzards we processed together and they just had so much fun with it. And I just love seeing other people inspired by this process people who, these are grown adults, some of them were advanced age, and, you know, like, had just started game hunting for the first time in their lives. And that means so much to me to be able to share that experience with them. Mm-hmm. So to see their enthusiasm is something that just makes me so, so happy. Um, so that's, that's one experience I wanted to share. That's amazing. And then the food was so really good. <laughs> I, have follow,
0: I have follow up questions about gizzards, but we'll get there after your second okay, story.
2: Okay. <laughs> we'll get to get- Um, And then my other experience, So I got my first deer two years ago, um, and I got the, I used the Apprentice tag here in South Dakota. So South Dakota has this really awesome opportunity. If you have not uh, had a big game tag in South Dakota for at least 10 years, if not ever, and you're an adult, you can get the Apprentice tag and $5 over the counter, any deer tag that's statewide. And it is such an amazing beginner opportunity. And so my friend Casey and I had gone to the range, we sighted in my rifle, and I've I've shot for a while in my life, but this particular rifle I decided to purchase from her. And we started going out in the field together. And we had some really amazing evening hunts where we were just sitting peacefully on a hillside waiting for wildlife to come through our view. And there were, we went out a total of six times. We saw deer every time we were out, but it just wasn't the right shot. And there was one evening where I was sitting on the bank. Overlooking Lake Oahi, which is um, a dammed up reservoir of the Missouri River, and this bank of snow clouds like blew in off the lake, and it was this perfectly silent snow, this huge, beautiful flakes, and it smelled like snow. You know what I mean? That smell like mm-hmm. a smell of snow. And there were deer like eating in the field below us, and we were sitting on the hillside. And I just remember thinking, there's no other reason why I would have been outside tonight. Right. And it is easily just one of my favorite moments in the hunting history of mine that just like reminded me of the wildlife that I love and the natural wild spaces that I love and why I love to hunt. Um, and then a few short days later, we were sitting on, um, on this grassy knoll, and turkeys were flying down out of this tree. Um, I'd never heard the sound of turkeys coming down out of trees before, and had no idea how loud they were. Right. And four minutes later, we heard, um, you know, hoof beats like coming towards us. And my doe stepped out into a clearing at 30 yards, and I took a shot, and she ran off into the brush, but she died immediately. And um, I just remember how amazing it was to think that that deer had a wild life, like a blessed and wild life, and she died of. Swift death on a beautiful fall afternoon, and then I was able to process her right away and and share her with my family. And that's the kind of stuff that just like it meant so much to be able to respect that deer in that way and share my, that with my family and my friends.
0: That's beautiful. I think you know, it speaks the way you tell that story just speaks to the full uh, complexity of why we're out there and what we're experiencing out there. You know, everything from the snow falling to the turkeys dropping from the trees and. Um, and then all the way through to the community connection that that deer facilitates well, through thanks. food. It's just beautiful. Yeah. you so much.
2: And I think one thing that Emily and I touched on earlier while we were visiting is like, it's a huge part of mental health to be outside and mm-hmm. have the volume from your day and the volume from work and the volume from family and being a spouse and all of these other things, right? All the noises in your life. To have a space where you can go and just turn the volume down. Yeah. And really just focus on being outside I feel like that's such a huge component of mental health that is part of being in wild spaces
1: it's so I have to also mention before we get too far that we did eat that mountain lion too oh of course I had no doubt oh yeah yeah yes and it, and and we shared it with friends too who never had it because yeah. a lot of people have never eaten it. But it's it's good, anyway. <laughs> my
2: husband's
1: yeah. a great cook with wild game, so God bless him. But I I just want to make sure I hear that. Yeah. And unlike Emily, my
2: husband does not hunt, so I hunt with my friends. My husband does not hunt; he'll eat anything I make.
0: Right. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I haven't had the pleasure of trying mountain lion yet, but uh, the people I talk to who have who have. Uh, I mean, talk about it as one of the most delicious, um, animals they've, they've had.
1: Once you get over the fact that you're eating a cat.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Which I had to do bear hunting too. I had, you know, there's a little, oh. yeah. Yeah. It's a different <laughs> understanding of where your food comes from for sure. Um, This seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from um, the NWF Outdoors podcast, and we will be right back with my other four hundred ninety-nine thousand questions. Howdy, Artemis listeners! This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. All right, welcome back. Um. Oh, gosh, I had a million questions. So I want, it's its so cool. Tanaya. you also mentioned kind of a, uh, a couple of different ways that the agency reach out, reaches out to new hunters um, to, to support their growth and confidence in the field. Uh, and I'm curious, I mean, South Dakota has some amazing programs and particularly amazing programs to get women more involved. Um, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to why that's so important for the agency.
2: Um, I'd love for Emily to chime in and speak specifically from the agency perspective, and then uh, perhaps I can chime in from a council perspective. Yeah, Great. if that's okay with you. Beth. Of course, of
1: course. Um, you know, and not just from the South Dakota Department of Game, Fish, and Parks perspective, but just for the sport and the activity of, of hunting um, as a whole. I mean, we have, when we look at female hunters, I mean, it's it's really, it boils down to the fact that they are household managers they are typically the planners of the household and you know i i really think that when you hear women talk about hunting in the outdoors just like you've heard tonight and i talk about it it's so much about the family aspect and and bringing the family into the the fold, and so really, at our department, we are very focused on outdoor families and building them for the for the perpetual, um, you know, transfer of that tradition and that love from one generation to the next. And I'll just share a quick story here, where my actions as the the household manager and the planner and the the executor uh, of most things, and and then being female too, is is something that you know comes full circle with my son then he's six last year he was five and this is all about dove hunting so he he saw me one you know out buying the different shells that we needed for for dove hunting uh two we bought a couple new mojos um and those things are slick the <laughs> doves come in like crazy once you set those uh, decoys out and they're a flip of the switch and he can he can help set those up but he saw us buying those um he saw the excitement then of, of getting ready getting dressed I mean you don't really have to um put on too many clothes to go dove hunting September 1st um in South Dakota because the weather's fairly nice, nice. Lovely. So that's another plus um, for us, we live in an area where we can walk out our door and fortunately be able to to sit within minutes and have a short spurt of time to just dove hunt. So again, seeing seeing mom do that, my mom and son, you know, myself and my son can can be out in short spurts. We can be out instantly and and turning those mojos on and getting set up and you know, almost shooting with within minutes too. And so that oh and don't forget the snacks I had (laughs) (laughs) never whenever you take children into the field you must bring snacks
0: and lots of snacks because starting yeah starting in utero
1: (laughs) yeah yeah the first question I get is or the statement is I'm hungry do you have a snack or what do we have to eat so you know it's always about snacks um so but just So, so you've got that set up. He, Colton, my son's name's Colton. Um, So Colton sees all of these actions being showcased and being demonstrated and sees the excitement from, from the female leader. And, you know, say that was on a a Saturday night or maybe a Sunday night. So then Monday night on the drive home or whatever night that was, you know, I was like, hey, bud, you want to, you want to go hunting again this evening? Yeah, mom. Yeah, I sure do. Okay. So that happened for, I don't know, a, several days because we would go um right after we got home from work. Well, it didn't take, you know, any more than that to, for him to then start asking me, Hey mom, want to go dove hunting? Yeah, bud, I sure do. And that's, you know, and so I just think women, you know, once they're involved in whatever that outdoor activity might be, Um, and, and the children or maybe the friends or the spouse sees that and sees the intensity and the, the passion and the drive to, to do more of that, there, there's going to be that natural kind of, you know, uh, segue into that next generation. And so for me and my family, and, and that's really what I can speak to is, is that's what we're building today is, is that next generation of hunters and, um, I I don't know what that would look like if I wasn't involved in hunting and fishing as much as I am, but I'm sure glad that I am because that is something that is near and dear to my heart, and I want to make sure that my my children um, are just as involved. On the flip side, you know we have a split family, so my 16 year old daughter is 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 my stepdaughter now. Her her mom and her stepdad do not hunt; they don't hunt. They they lead the life of rodeo, and and so at our home is her only exposure to hunting because her dad and myself hunt. And so, um, I mean, just kind of take that in balance. Um, as, as I say, the things that I've just said, um, cause I don't know that she'd be exposed to it if she was, you know, just with her mom, you know, full time, but fortunately she's also with us and we get to do those activities with her and she loves it just as much. Nice,
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think
2: from my perspective, um, you know, women have been hunters for a long time. I mean, a long time. And I think those stories have been underrepresented in media and in the national narrative around hunting. And so I think, you know, in addition to getting more women involved, it's certainly about telling the stories of the women who are already involved and amplifying those stories and being role models for other people in the field. Um, I am the mother of two daughters. I want them to see me as a hunter and know that, that that is available to them as well. Um, But in addition to that, I'm also an individual woman and I want to be a welcoming space to other women who are hunters and and let them know that even other folks that don't look like them out in the field, they belong there. And this is for them. This is their space. Yeah.
0: I, okay. So real life case study. Um, I'm a Montanan who is interested in doing a destination hunt to South Dakota for pheasants. Where do I start? That's that's awesome. First of all, it it
1: is. I'm I'm really excited to hear that. And you know, we welcome new hunters. You know, the traditionalists. You know, the avid hunters, all of any kind, we're state. We really roll out the orange carpet for for pheasant hunters. The orange carpet. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that orange carpet. We we. We do hospitality and over-the-top customer service like no other state when it comes to, to pheasant hunting, but but also for all of our users, whether they're trappers or they're anglers or they're, you know, um, it could be other upland bird hunters as well. And, and you know, big hunt, big game hunters, I mean, they, they provide a lot of, you know, economic uh, driving factors to our main streets, which is pretty special too. But for, for pheasant hunters and in particular, you know, like yourself, we have over 1 million acres of public hunting spaces out there. And that is, is credit and, and thankfulness to the partnerships, the conversations that we have with landowners across the state. So we have, we have walking areas that they are, are contracted, um, you know, to provide access to, to hunters. Um, We have controlled hunting access programs where, you know, for example, um, there might be people that are signed in on that, that just allow uh, pheasant hunters. So we could, we could showcase those and, and offer, you know, information on those. A lot of them, um, you know, tailor to to big game like turkey hunting or something like that. But there's those types of acres. Um, you know, we are very much ingrained in meeting hunters where they are. So you as a new hunter and destination hunting um, to our state, I mean, I would just offer giving us a call, making sure you talk with us about where you want to go, what you want to do, what you want to see. Um, we can help provide you um and others with the tools that you need to be successful from our public hunting atlas to our hunting and trapping handbook which lists all of our rules and uh, regulations And making sure that it's not overwhelming we again i want to repeat that we would meet you where you are if you've never been here before that can be pretty daunting especially with what i you know started out with by saying that we have over a million acres of public hunting spaces out there and where do you go what do you do where where would i have the most success and so those are things that um, any one of us staff members can visit with you about um, to help support you uh, your travels and then your hunting experience very cool.
0: Um, all right. I have one last question. Well, I have a million other questions, but one last burning question before um, we start to wind down. Let's go back to that gizzard. Uh, yeah, yeah. What do you do with them? How do you cook them? What are some recipes for gizzard? I, so first and foremost,
2: let's just get one thing straight gizzards are gnarly to harvest out of an animal and they're not as meaty on a pheasant as they are on a chicken but like how big is it it's it's like maybe two-thirds the size of a chicken gizzard they're not like they're like
0: i don't know when you get them all slayed out they're like two half dollars
1: like stuck together
0: oh that's actually bigger than i was picturing i was picturing like quarter so half dollars bigger yeah it depends on the pheasant yeah for sure (laughs) like you So
2: you pull them out of there. You've got to flay them open, like butterfly them, basically, and pull all the grit and rocks and stuff out of them that are, you know, the that the, I was just going to say ditch parrot.
1: <laughs> and, then,
2: and then you've got to peel the, like, the inner membrane off because that's, that's, like, the lining of it that's got, you know, it's kind of funky. It's tough, too. So you peel that off. Once you've got that kind of flayed open gizzard, then you can – um, I personally just use like salt or season salt and flour um, and egg and you can just batter them and fry them and oh. they're, they salt them and they're gristly and delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the hearts are like teeny tiny little steaks. Those are delicious. Fry those up too. Um, and liver is the same way. You got to make sure you remove the bile duct from the livers if you're going to cook those. Okay. But they're delicious. They really are um, really high in vitamins too. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation uh, and I appreciate the time and the deeper connection I now feel to South Dakota uh, because of the very cool stories and descriptions that you both painted. Uh, Is there anything else you want to be sure to mention?
2: Um, So, you know, with the state of South Dakota, I worked as the R3 coordinator and now I get to work on national R3 efforts with the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. And, you know, oftentimes we're approached with people who may be critical of recruitment or efforts and, you know, might feel threatened by adding more people to the hunting cadre that are in the the nation. And my, I think, main response to that concern would be that um, wild spaces belong to everyone and wildlife is held in the public trust for all to enjoy and not just for a small sector of the population to enjoy. And right now we only have 3% of the population that pays for conservation funding through Pittman-Robertson. And I think, We have a whole lot more people who would engage in these activities if they felt safe and welcome in these spaces and would help to contribute towards the future conservation of those wild spaces that we all love. And so I think what's really important to remember is that these resources belong to all of us and we are all the stewards of those spaces together. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think when we're talking about uh, people who are critical of the R three movement mostly what they're concerned about is pressure and access. And I think the more True. people that care about this as deeply as most people who enter the field as hunters and anglers end up caring about this, the more we can do to protect and expand that those access and opportunities. Uh, and so I think absolutely, yeah. I've I think heard. no, I I've
2: I've think that, that with backcountry hunters and anglers. That the more people that you have pressing legislatively, legislatively, you have pressing on state, you know, opportunities to open up landlocked public lands and to open up opportunities on private lands that will help to alleviate that pressure. And I think those conversations are huge. And I know South Dakota Gang Fish and Parks is really concerned about habitat and access. And I know nationally that's a huge discussion about how to open up landlocked public lands.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how to make sure that the land we do have access to is is has a vital and healthy ecosystem so the animals that are on it yeah. can thrive. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing that up.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about that. Um,
0: Emily, anything else you wanted to be sure to mention? No,
1: you know, I just I think when we look at being
0: outside
1: and just being able to disconnect, yet connect so fully with our families and our friends, or maybe it's just with the dogs, whatever it might be. You know, I shared an Instagram post on the pheasant opener and for, for me and my family anymore, it's for, it's not about the amount of birds that we're going to bring home, but it's the smiles, the laughter, the togetherness, you know, the food, the conversation, it's the tradition of a family being in the field together. I would much rather see my daughter and son um, when he, as he comes of age and my nephews and the cousins get their birds I mean it's not about me taking a shot it's watching them even if they miss um, making sure that they're safe um, that we're logically thinking about um, where we're stepping and with guns and you know things like that and so I just I just really want to make sure that I close with you know for me it's you know and this is the way i grew up it's never been about the harvest or the kill it's about the camaraderie and the fun and just being able to to cherish the outdoors and to know you know tonight i've talked about this too to know that it's a privilege to be out there um and recreating um in those spaces um because if we don't continue to take care of them um we risk losing them. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah and i think even uh it's stronger than risk. If we don't take the time to protect them, Mm -hmm. to conserve them, then we will lose them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Emphasis, Marsha's. Thank you. Yeah. I want to spend the last couple of minutes on our weekly closer. The question is, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? Tanaya, what have you been aiming for? Oh man.
2: So it's the same context of, our personal professional <laughs> dealer's choice whatever know, yeah so I think one thing that's really hard to maintain is balance and I feel like you know as a spouse and a mother and as a professional oftentimes those things come first and they should in some situations but I think in order to remain strong in those relationships and in those positions you also have to be a strong individual and for me like carving out time to go hunting and carving out time for myself to be strong and enjoy the things that I really gain life from helps me to be a better spouse and a better mother and a better professional. And so um, that's what I've been aiming for. And in addition to that, professionally growing into my role and carving out the space to make sure that I am doing what I can to advocate for diverse voices in conservation um, and amplify and be an instigator for those conversations.
0: Nice. Emily, what have you been aiming for and how did it go? So... My big
1: aim right now, and Tanaya and I, you know, because we're close friends and colleagues, we've we've talked about that work life balance. I don't know if there's a a real thing like that, but one of my my habits that I am focused on is being where my hands are, and what I mean by that is like being present in the moment. Um, so wherever my hands are is where I need to be, where my focus needs to be. Um, And just making sure that I practice the art of the pause and slow things down um, when I am present in those moments. And that's because I go 90 like every single day. Um, So that's a hard thing for me to kind of slow down, but it's, I've got an island up there and making sure that I do that. Um, The other thing, you know, would be, you know, just making sure that I'm spreading kindness every single day, too, because we're all fighting something, um, whether it's at work, it's at home, uh, it's at school, you know, it's, it's outside, whatever it might be, but just making sure I'm doing my part every single day to, to spread the kindness.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I'm going to stick with this line of thinking for my own hit and miss, because I think it is something that I've been spending a lot of time in just processing and trying to incorporate because I think, you know, at Artemis, we talk a lot about how a lot of uh, definitions are defined for us. Um, And the important thing is to dig into it and figure out what it means for us, whether it's like, what does it, what does hunting mean to us? What does that look like? Is it a 12 mile hike into the back country to to pursue an elk? Or is it just to step out the front door um, to shoot a squirrel? Like, it can be whatever we want it to be. And I've been thinking about that in terms of self-care because we all know that it's important, right? We all know that it's important and that we're not our best unless we take care of ourselves and we can't be best for each other unless we take care of ourselves. And yet the the step from knowing to doing, I think, is something that's so hard. And I know it's hard for me personally uh, because it's the first thing that can go when I'm busy, Um, or when I know that there are things that need to be done, whether it's for my professional life or my personal life, it's the first thing to go. And so I think I've been thinking a lot about stopping that dynamic and how to put action behind what I know to be important. So it, it no longer gets dropped. And that's really hard, um, and i think like everything like right like teaching helping your kids sleep through the night it's it's harder before it's easier and so i think right now Whoa, i'm in that God. stage where it's harder before it's easier and so just trying to work through that transition and then also emily kind of what you were talking about um being where your hands are and i really like that phrasing and a tactic that i've been um trying out lately Is like when I get carried away by anxiety or about anticipating something that is in the future or ruminating over something I said five days ago that is still nagging me, is to, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's essentially to take like a minute or two to narrate what's happening in the now. So like now I'm turning on the water and now I'm sticking my hands under the faucet and now I'm washing my hands and now I'm drying them on the towel and now I'm going to get a drink of coffee and now I'm raising the cup of coffee to my lips. And so it's a real like and now and now and now focus as to what's happening in the moment to just kind of stop the hamster wheel of the brain and and tangibly bring it to something to an activity that is focused on what's happening in the moment. And I feel a little bit like that's what hunting does, almost as just a side effect, because you're in the woods and it's, and now I see this mountain lion track and (laughs) I notice it's going in that direction. And so it's a less intentional, less kind of um, gimmicky way of doing that. But being in the woods pursuing prey You have to be in the now, because if you're not, you miss something.
2: Um, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That was a long ramble. uh, That That was great. (laughs) I hope took us someplace.
2: That's a great way to wrap it up. Yeah, I think so too.
0: Yep. Thank you both again for your time. Um, I appreciate it. And now I'm saying goodbye to you. (laughs) Uh, to our listeners joining us this week on the Artemis podcast thank you so much enjoy your hunting season as well and don't forget to send us pictures we we love to see how your seasons are going until next time be bold stay curious and get outside